Good morning, church. Welcome. Uh, For those of you who are visiting, welcome to Echo Church. We are a church that is... uh, (laughs) I'm trying to think of other cliches I don't use. I think I've used pretty much all of them. We're a church on the ground. We are a church that uh, reflects the love of God, the love that He has given us. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Uh, We live that out, but we live that out in a very tangible way. We don't just live that out by going to church on Sunday. We want to live that out Monday through Saturday as well. And so um, how do we do that? That's generally kind of the uh, overarching reason that we have the name Echo. We're a resonation of what God has done for us. But anyway, we're glad that you're here. It's approximately 35 days until Easter. All right. And uh, I know today's St. Patty's Day. Uh, Hillary gave me this. I don't know if this is too much of a distraction. The first thing that she said to me when she saw me was, you don't have any green, (laughs) which is something I always get to hear because I don't have a whole lot of green. So she handed me this, which I love. Um, Today's St. Patrick's Day, and we have a potluck right after church. I don't care if you're a member, if you're visiting, everyone's invited. We'll go out there, we'll invite people. So we'll have food, and uh, we hope that you'll uh, enjoy the the potluck that comes after today's, today's service. Since it's 35 days until Easter, I want to go ahead and implement something that I've been thinking about for a while, and it's going to take a little bit of work on your part. We're in a series that's called Knowing Jesus. The idea is this, what does it mean to know Jesus? More importantly, how do you know Jesus Christ? Whether you're a follower or not, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you believe all this stuff or not, how would you come into a greater understanding, come into a greater relationship with Jesus Christ. And in the same way, you you look at your own relationships in your own life. How do we grow closer to one another? And I use sort of the the concepts I've learned in communications where if you allow your worldview to come closer and closer with someone else's, it will decrease, as Tom was referring to earlier, the amount of noise, the amount of stuff that gets in the way. You will actually not only communicate better, you'll come to a deeper understanding of the person you're drawing closer to. So if that's, if that's true, then how do we do that with Jesus Christ? And so that's what this series has been about. We've talked about everything from the background of the Old Testament, the land in which they live, the political climate, all of these different things. And each week, it's, it's almost like I'm giving you another piece or another facet of who Jesus was and how we can understand him more deeply. And I, I really hope that you aren't allowing each of these lessons to stand alone. They're, they're meant to compile. They're meant to stack up on top of each other. And as we draw closer to Easter, particularly in the last couple of Sundays before we get there, I think you're going to understand where we're going. So I, that's to give you a little bit of anticipation, but I need you to do your homework. Yes, I'm giving you homework. There is a wonderful, glorious thing called a Bible app. Now, many of you already have this, but uh, what I would like to do is this. I want to challenge our church that everyone gets the Bible app. Now, this was an app that had been introduced. It was by Craig Rochelle's church, um, which is Life, Life Church? No, Church? Anyway, Craig Rochelle's church. And uh, he implemented this particular tool, and what I'd like for you to do is to go find it. Uh, it looks just like this. Very simple. So this is, this is with an iPhone, of course. I'm not sure how the Android will, will work on this. But anyway, this is what you're looking for. Many of you already have it. You, you put it on your phone. And what's great about it is this, is it also includes a little tab that says community. My encouragement to you is this. 
I'll be sending out invitations. You don't have to accept the invitation. I know some of you, you're like, all I need is more notifications. You could turn the notifications off, all right? But I like the idea of us doing this as a church. What would it mean for us to read through the four Gospels before we get to Easter? You individually. How many chapters would that require? You've got 35 days until Easter. You've got five weeks until Easter. So how would we do that? Also, if you've been paying attention to the lessons, you have three Gospels that are very similar, which is why we call them the synoptic, great, good job class, synoptic Gospels, and then you have John, who kind of sticks out, the oddball, right? How would we collaborate those, right? What's great is, is there's a program that if you get this particular app, I then want you to look for a plan that's called A Harmony of the Gospels in 30 Days. Now, you don't have to start it right away. In fact, what I'm going to do is send out an invitation. I've already programmed it to begin this Wednesday. So between now and Wednesday, you're going to be receiving, if you have this app, you'll be receiving an invitation from me to join this particular program, which is A Harmony of the Gospel in 30 days. I really like it because it sort of divides it up. You're going to read a little bit of Matthew coupled with a little bit of Luke. And then the next day you're going to read some of maybe of Mark, you know, and, and some of John. Whatever, however they're dividing it up. All right. I think we should do this together. So that's what I would like to encourage you to do. I would love to say this is what you must do, but uh, I'll give you some freedom. Uh, anyway, as long as you're in the Word, and as long as we are thinking about the different facets of who Jesus was, remember he's God, he's also man, right? And what he did, and the things that he said. Last week we talked about the parables. Last week we talked about these, these short little stories and what they meant and, and how we should interpret these particular things. But there was one truth that I hope that you were paying attention to, and that was this, that if your heart is not ready to accept truth, then it won't make any difference. It'll just be a kid's story to you. That's exactly where the people were at the time when Jesus told it. There were those who had ears that were ready to listen, and there were those whose ears were closed. Their hearts were not ready. And so that was sort of the, the, the takeaway that I proposed to you last week. Um, also, I, we talked a little bit about the temptations that Jesus went through. He was human as well. That means he walked through temptations. The Bible tells us that he was tempted. In fact, the Bible tells us in Hebrews, he's been tempted in almost every way that you have, right? What does that mean? And I talked about the fact that temptation, sin, sin's not abstract. No, it, it has been tailor-made to fit you. It is filled with specificity. It is ready to attack you in a very unique way which means you are to withhold judgment of how others are struggling with a particular sin that you don't seem to struggle with. That's because it's not for you. It's for them. Just as it wasn't for you, the types of temptations Jesus went through, it was specifically for him. And it was difficult. And so we look at that, right? And we try to draw closer and closer to Jesus Christ. Today we are talking about the, the, the subject that I've been waiting to talk about. I'm very excited about this particular subject, but it's going to start with... Um, Kind of a story. Uh, those of you who have lived here for more than 20 years, not to date yourselves, but more than 20, you, yes, you may remember a sweet little restaurant called Montana Pie Company. So good. They made the best pies and they made them in the basement. And I remember as a teenager, I was like, oh, I really want to work here. Like that was my life's ambition was to be a waiter at Montana Pie Company. Well, my wish came true. While I was in college, I applied for a job there. And so I was given the job of seating host. 
All right? So I was the first friendly face that you're going to see as you come into the restaurant. And I would ask how many were in your party, and I would look at my little map, and I would decide where I was going to seat you. And I don't know if it really dawned on me at that time, but it has certainly dawned on me now. That's a tremendous amount of power. I mean, think about it, right? I'm going to tell you exactly where you're going to go, and you're going to sit right there. Not only that, but the wait staff that is going to, whoever's going to wait on you, they're kind of banking on the fact that I'm going to divvy up the people who are coming through the door in a very fair manner and so that everyone has opportunity to be doing their jobs and collecting tips, right? So don't tick me off. Because that's exactly what could happen and it is exactly what would happen. So if you had a waiter or a waitress that would really rub me the wrong way, do you really think I'm going to give them more tables? No. And then they get upset about it. Meanwhile, you have this other sweet little waitress, and maybe she's even kind of cute, right? Because I'm shallow. And so, you know, and, 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 and they, they tip you, right? They give, a, give you a little bit of money. Man, that goes a long way. I'll give you some table. I'll do whatever you want, you know? And when it comes to busting the tables and cleaning it up and getting it ready, there's a tremendous amount of power in there, if you really think about it. And I mean, think about this. There's a tremendous amount of power in a number of different professions. Traffic cops, Right? I mean, they're directing traffic, and you want them there directing traffic. How about airport TSA screeners? I had to fly to Louisiana this week, by the way. It was a very sudden trip, all right? But those are the people that are checking your bags, making sure everything is safe. We, we definitely uh, know the power that they have. Elected officials, college professors, and like I said, seating hosts in, in, in restaurants. They can either shut you down or wave you through, okay? So there's this power that they get to have. People love power because as soon as you hold it in your hand, you're given this incredible responsibility. Is anyone thinking of Spider-Man yet? All right. With tremendous power comes... Okay, see? Okay, tremendous responsibility, right? So what will you use it for? Will you use it for good? Will you use it for evil? So Jesus comes to this earth and he is equipped with tremendous power. He is God, fully God and fully man. Given limitations, ones that he provided, but still with a tremendous amount of power. What does he do with it? In fact, if anything, you could compare what Jesus does with his power versus what some of mythology shows us, whether that's Greek mythology. What are those gods like? What do they do with their power, right? So the questions that I have for you are these. I mean, what do we learn about his character when we look at his miracles? So today we're going to be looking at the miracles of Jesus Christ because the miracles display tremendous power. What does it show us? What does it show us not only about his character but also about the fact that he is the Messiah? What kind of a Messiah would he be? Would he be somebody who's going to rule with a rod of iron? And then also, what does he channel that power toward? What was the subject of his power? What were the things that he preferred to channel that power toward? And then I'd also like to just throw this out there. He familiarizes us with something that he preaches about, this thing called kingdom. So what kind of a kingdom is that? And I want to talk about that. So first I want to just talk about miracles. Uh, This idea of miracles. Miracles are very exciting. In fact, in uh, the book of Mark, 
there are uh, 17 different stories of miracles that happen within the first eight chapters. Now, if you remember when I was talking about the authors of these different books, Mark doesn't hesitate, and he wants to get to the good stuff, and he does. And so he always uses the word immediately. And immediately they went to, you know, that kind of thing. And he has all these miracles almost back to back because that's exciting, especially for the reader, right? And then most of his stories seem to be repeated through both Matthew and Luke. A few fun facts for you. Um, Scripture has no single word that is translated as miracle. Our word miracle comes from a Latin word miraculum, which essentially means something that evokes wonder. But there are four primary Greek words that are used interchangeably to refer to miracles. And so we would then translate them as miracles. There's the word works, which is ergon, all right? The other word is teras, which is wonders. You'll find this in Luke's writing. So also, not just in the Gospel of Luke, but especially in the book of Acts, you know, you'll hear about him performing many wonders, right? But you'll also hear this other word, uh, signs, which is the Greek word seimion, all right? The, uh, the idea of signs, you'll hear that also in the book of Acts, right? Many wonders and signs were being performed. And then this word dunamis, which is powers. And we get our words dynamite and dynamic from that particular word. And so you have these four different words that are being used to refer to this idea of miracles. There are typically five primary categories of miracles. You have healings and cures. You also have exorcisms. In other words, demons are being taken out of, of the picture. You have resurrection. Okay? Resurrection. There was a, well... It's a funny story. There was a church, and I don't want to say what church it is, because I'm not trying to slam this church at all, but there was a little boy who went to his class in church, and, and I had a guy telling me this later. He was like, yeah, my son went to, went to church. I went, um, and he was only about nine years old, and they're studying the resurrection, right, of Jesus Christ. And the teacher, teacher says, was anyone else ever raised from the dead in the Bible? And my son said, yeah. And she said, no. No, nobody else was raised from the dead. <laughs> what about Lazarus? Well, no, no. You know, it's like sometimes people think there was only one resurrection. There was not. There were several resurrections. In fact, there were three other resurrections that we know of that are, are being at least listed in terms of Jesus' miracles. Uh, he had control over nature, which is the fourth category of miracle. And then also the fifth would be the, the forgiveness of, uh, of sins. Now, I will say this. In my opinion, the pinnacle of all of his miracles would probably be what? His own bodily, what? Resurrection. There's a total of 37 miracles. Of course, this is up for debate as well. Some say 40 miracles, somewhere in the middle between, between all of that. But you know what the first recorded miracle is, right? It's in John chapter 2. What is it? Water to wine, right? It's one of our favorites. It's one of our favorites for a number of different reasons. Because first of all, Jesus was at a party, right? He is invited to a wedding feast, and he gets to go to this particular feast and he's consuming wine. And so some people are like, yeah, see, and we can party. <laughs> no, not necessarily, but that is where he was at at the time. And then they run out of wine, and there's a crisis. And what's really interesting is, is his mother is aware. So you kind of wonder, this is the first recorded miracle, but there were probably other miracles. Somehow his, his mother, Mary, I mean, she knows, at least she knows what he's capable of, because she comes to him in a bit of a tizzy, right? And she's kind of like, listen, we, we're in a crisis, okay? Nobody's dying. It's, it has nothing to do with war. Nothing like that. No, we're out of wine, all right? 
and, and we need something to happen, and you're the only one who can fix this problem. And I love the way the NLT translates this, but in verse 4, this is what Jesus says. She says, dear woman, that is not our problem. And I love that. Uh, I, I kind of wonder if I could have used that growing up with my own mom. You know, do the dishes, dear woman. <laughs> no. But uh, he then says, my time has not yet come. And then she leaves. She's like, yeah, well, do whatever he tells you. you know, and that's it. And of course, he performs that particular miracle and turns it into wine. Not only just wine, but what? The best. The best wine. Uh, but of course, there are previous miracles in the Bible. Jesus is not the first one to do miracles. You've got the ten plagues of Egypt. You've got the parting of the Red Sea. Manna from heaven. Quell in the evening. You've got water being poured out of a rock. You've got Aaron's rod that would bud. You've got the ground opening up and swallowing up a rebellion that was led by a guy named Korah. You've got the sun and moon standing still. You've got people being thrown in a fiery furnace and not dying at all. In fact, they didn't even have the smell of fire on them when they were removed from it. You've got Daniel in the lion's den. All these different miracles. So what's different? Jesus' miracles were distinctive. They were signs and mighty works of several things. And I want to talk about three things. Number one is this. They revealed his identity. They showed who he was and what he was about. In John chapter 20, we read these words, the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. His miracles would bring this truth because he was teaching all the time. But his teaching would be coupled with these miracles. And it was the miracles that were specific to his identity. This is very different than some of the previous miracles that you see in the, uh, the Old Testament. For one thing, what you would see is that people received these particular miracles with awe. But not everyone. Some would still have measure of doubt. Many, many times because of the, the condition of their heart. But you can see how they would respond. Uh, another one of our favorite uh, miracles is recorded in Mark chapter 2. Uh, what happens is, is essentially Jesus is teaching in a particular place. The house is slammed with people. They all want to see him. Maybe they're waiting for another miracle. Who knows? But four friends are like, this is our chance to help our buddy Bob. They don't say what his name is. But, you know, whoever he is, uh, help him out because he's a paralytic. They don't know how to get in, so they get real creative. They go to the top of the roof. They begin to tear a hole out of the roof, and they lower him down in the middle, probably right in front of Jesus, right? Talk about noise in the channel. There's stuff falling from the ceiling. Everyone's like, what in the world? And so here he, he, he gets lowered right down to Jesus Christ. And what's fun is this. Jesus has this beautiful way of connecting the physical with the spiritual. He knows the hearts of those in the room. And he says to them, which do you think is more difficult? For me to say, rise up and walk? Or for me to say, you're forgiven of your sins? And he says to the man, you are forgiven of your sins. Which they're going to go into a crazy, they're, they're going to go nuts. But then, he says, now, rise up and walk. 
And so the power of God is, is seen in the fact that in a very tangible way, this man who everybody knows is paralytic, he rises up to his feet. It says that he leapt up. Like he like jumps up, grabs his pallet, right? You know, I don't know. Doing ninja moves. I don't know. He's so excited. But what does it show? That not only does this man have control of nature, he probably has control of something even deeper than that. A spiritual side of things someone who can forgive sins are you kidding and it says these words it says all were amazed we're glorifying God saying we have never seen anything like this this is unprecedented we've never seen this kind of a miracle before same thing with Mark chapter 5, further along in Mark. I told you, he's the one with all the action in this. Uh, there was a man named Jarius, and he wants Jesus to come and heal his daughter because his daughter is on the brink of death. By the time Jesus gets to the place, she's dead. They know that she's dead before they even get to the house because they can hear the bellowing. They can hear the people mourning and crying out. Jesus walks in, and he, and he sees her lying there. He can hear all of the people crying, and he says, actually, guess what? She's not dead. She's actually asleep. What's funny about the scripture is it says that their mourning turned to laughter, but not in a good way. They were actually mocking him. They began to laugh. They're like, no, she's dead. And they found it incredulous. And so he's like, everybody, out of the house. And then you see the sensitivity of his character where he, he, he brings the mother and the father and the family into the room, closes the door, keeps everyone else out. He then takes the child by the hand. In Matthew, or Mark chapter 5, verse 41, it says, Taking the child by the hand, Jesus said to her, Talitha kum, which is translated, Little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl got up. She began to walk, for she was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astounded. Once again, this is unprecedented. We have never seen this before. I love the story with Mark chapter 6, the very next chapter. This is right after he's fed the 5,000. He's been teaching people get hungry. And so in this, in this great glorious miracle, he multiplies food and he feeds all these different people. So they have all this food and eventually it's like, it's been a great day and he withdraws from all of them. It says, Mark's very gentle with, with, the way, with his translation. He says that, that Jesus said goodbye to them. In the other translations, it says Jesus kind of escapes. But he goes to a mountain to pray. Meanwhile, the disciples get into a boat and they start to row across this lake. I've been to that lake. It's the Sea of Galilee. They call it the Sea of Galilee, but it's also it's this big lake. Uh, and many times it has wind. And it says in verse 47, when it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea. And he, Jesus, was alone on the land. But seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them at about the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. And I love these words. This is literally what the Bible says. And he intended to pass by them. Which I think is hilarious. Like, what's the plan? It's like, I guess. Slow going. You know, it's like, I mean, is, is that what was about to happen? In verse 49, when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed him to be a ghost. They cried out and they said, uh, for they all saw him and they were terrified. And immediately he spoke with them and he said, take courage. It's I. Do not be afraid. And he steps into the boat. He got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped. And they were utterly astonished. Unprecedented. What's interesting is the very next verse says, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves because their hearts were hardened. How interesting. 
You have these powerful works that are happening and you have to understand for sometimes the way in which they land is very powerful. It's unprecedented. And then in other ways, it doesn't resonate at all. And I want you to ask yourself that question. Why? Why? What, what is going on? Miracles did more than just astonish. They led to an awe of God. In a way, they led to a worship of God. And they certainly led to an element of huma- humility within ourselves. There are all sorts of miracles. I'll just uh, uh, go through a few really, really fast uh, in terms of how we would control nature. You, of course, have the uh, walking on the water, the calming of the ocean. uh, But you also have where there was a fish that was caught and it had a coin uh, inside of it. There's a fig tree that withers. This is where Joe and Ethan and I, we get a kick out of whether or not we see Jesus working with his hands when he casts miracles like, you know. And we like to think it's a two-handed thing. It just seems more dramatic, you know. <laughs> so, but he does. He sees a, a fig tree that doesn't have any fruit on it, and he commands it to wither up and die. And it's an example. And it was such a powerful example that his disciples would bring it up a couple days later. You have a huge catch of fish. That happens several times, including after Jesus has left this earth and he comes back as the resurrected Lord. He performs even another miracle that includes a control of nature with a huge catch of fish. There's lots of healing of individuals. There were several different kinds of healings. There's the man with leprosy that is healed. You have Peter's mother-in-law. She gets healed. But then you also have people being healed in terms of evil spirits. So leprosy would be oftentimes seen as the epitome of sin. But then also realize that demon possession is a very real and tangible and loud demonstration of Satan's rule on this earth. So to have demons taken away from someone displays a power that then once again transcends from the physical over into the spiritual. And you had this side-by-side uh, type of thing that was happening. And of course, the raising of the dead. Uh, not only was Jairus' daughter raised, but the widow's son at Nain. And uh, of course, Lazarus as well. But you see, the people were looking for these kinds of miracles. They didn't know the kinds of miracles that they would see. They were astonished and they say that they're unprecedented, but they were waiting for them. Miracles did more than just demonstrate His power. They also fulfilled Scripture. Isaiah 7, verse 14, it said that the Lord Himself, He will give you a sign. And so the Jewish people were always looking for signs. Signs were a big deal. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. They would remember that all the way to when Jesus was born. Later in Isaiah chapter 42, it says, Behold, my servant, he's referring to Jesus, whom I uphold, this is God speaking, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, he will bring forth justice to the nations. As a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from in prison. And so you had this, this kind of chatter that's happening in the, the Old Testament times, and these are stories that would be then told to their children, and people would have that sense of hope. These miracles were fulfilling exactly what they were waiting for. In the Old Testament, Moses did miracles, remember, in front of Pharaoh to do what? To demonstrate that God's authority was upon him. He would turn his staff into a snake or he would turn water into blood. He would have plague after plague after plague to demonstrate what? God's power through him. Many of the prophets would have to have the same type of of demonstration. In fact, the Bible would even challenge people, if you really want to know if this is a prophet, 
then look at the prophecy that he is giving, whether it is fulfilled, but then also observe the signs that he has, right? That they come from God. But even John the Baptist was waiting. It says in Luke chapter 7, the disciples of John, John the Baptist, reported to him all these things about Jesus. So summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, are you the expected one? I love that. Or do we look for someone else? So when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you. And they asked, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? And at that very time, Jesus cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits. And he gave sight to many who were blind. And so Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf here the dead are raised up the poor have the gospel preached to them and of course john would hear this and i can only imagine his heart he would probably be extremely thrilled right because he understands these are the signs that they've been waiting for miracles would show jesus's character another aspect of miracles would be that his character would be seen we've already seen some of that already that miracles show his compassion to meet human need. Remember what I said at the very beginning. What are you using your power for? If you look at Greek mythology, you're going to see a bunch of gods that would mistreat humanity, right? And belittle them and exalt themselves with the power that they would have. And in many ways, that would be seen throughout our own history as humans. In Mark 1, Jesus encounters a man with leprosy. And it says in verse 41 that Jesus was filled with compassion. His emotion preceded the miracle that was about to occur because he reached out his hand and he touched the man and healed him. In many ways, these interactions that you see between people and with Jesus Christ, they're spontaneous. At least it, it, it comes across that way. It's almost as though Jesus is walking because he loves to be with the people and these different needs will show themselves. Now, I do believe that he had a specific plan in mind. He refers to it several times about who he's been sent to, Right? But you also got to look at the way it plays out. How sometimes people will approach him and it almost seems like a surprise. Even the incident with the wine. He's like, no, no, this isn't the plan, right? But how does he respond? Does he keep his power to himself? Or does he use miracles to build the bridges? It doesn't seem that they're always planned or calculated, but that there is a frequent intersection of God's love and human suffering. You see mercy over and over and over again, especially when he casts out demons because he's showing mercy to these people who live miserable, tormented lives. We see a Messiah who uses his power to heal and to comfort and to encourage rather than smite and dominate and humiliate. But there's a third reason, and I don't think this reason gets talked about a whole lot. But I'm going to have to back up just a tiny, tiny bit, and I want to uh, read to you this passage from Luke chapter 23. Referring to the identity of Jesus Christ, who was he? He was the Messiah, but how does he refer to himself? In Luke chapter 23, he's on trial. This is right before he's about to be crucified. It says, The whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse Jesus, saying, We found this man misleading our nation forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, which wasn't true, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So Pilate asked him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him. Some of the few words that he would say, 
He said, it is as you say. He's the king. What's the most common thing Jesus has talked about? I say this all the time. What has he talked about more than anything else in his teachings? What does he talk about? Kingdom. Number one, more than money, more than love, kingdom. He refers to the kingdom. He illustrates the kingdom. But what is the kingdom? You see, the kingdom, if it's going to be a kingdom, has to have a king. And essentially, when the king has his kingdom, whatever the king wants, the king gets, right? So he has this thing called a kingdom, and he is the ruler of this kingdom. The power that he demonstrates is that of a king who has said over and over and over, this kingdom is now arriving. Something is now here that wasn't here before. He himself, the king, is now here in a way that's never been seen. And I think there are several examples of this, and I want to look at Matthew chapter 12 real quick. There was a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and he was brought to Jesus. And Jesus healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. So all the crowds were amazed, and they were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? And when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. It's by Satan's power. That's how he casts out these demons. Verse 25, and knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, any kingdom divided against itself, it's laid to waste. Any city or house divided against itself, it's not going to stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand, idiots? It doesn't say idiots, but I mean, that's kind of the tone that you can imagine. If by Beelzebul I cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? <laughs> For this reason, they will be your judges. And then in verse 28, listen to these words. But if I, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Your rulers here. These miracles... They're giving you an indication that the kingdom has come. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus says, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So now, if that's true, right? What does it mean? Let's rewind a little. How is he using his miracles? How is he using his power? Here's the king. Here's his kingdom. To be a part of this kingdom and to believe in him, to function inside of that, what must that be like? Well, if you're sick, you'll be healed. If you have a demon that lives within you and it makes you miserable to the point that you hurt yourself, possibly even kill yourself, it will be removed. You look at the miracles and the character of Jesus and he is giving a display of how life ought to look. It's fascinating because when we think of miracles, we think of something where, oh wow, that's not what you would usually see in this world. That's not normal. And what Jesus is saying, no, no, you've got it backwards. If the kingdom's here, what's normal is that there's justice. What's normal is that there is healing. The fact that you are demon-possessed is what's not normal. The kingdom is here to give you a glimpse of how things ought to be. It's a glimpse of what it looked like in the garden. 
It's a glimpse of what it will look like when it's all over. Jesus is here and he's using his power in a miraculous way, not just to show what he can do, not just to show what God can do. It is part of his identity, but he's giving you a glimpse of what life really ought to be like. And when he says that the kingdom will come, he's literally saying, these qualities that I have, that I'm sharing with you right now, you get to live that way. Because right now you live in a broken, cursed earth. And the ruler of that earth is Satan. But he's not the one who wins. He's not the king. Because if I can drive him out, then guess who's the king? This is why I really love the Lord's Prayer. I think I've loved the Lord's Prayer more than I've ever loved the Lord's Prayer in all my life. I don't think I fully understood it. I don't think I fully understood it until we started working with this church. But our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, that you be glorified. May what? Your, may your kingdom come. Listen, Jesus is telling you to pray this. He's telling his disciples to pray this. We're specifically saying, your kingdom, may it come, right? May all that you want, may it be done. Where? On earth, as it is in heaven. Give us what? Did he feed people? He fed 5,000 people. He had miracle after miracle of feeding people. And what's his point? That Jesus has the power through his miracles. He can show you. You'll be provided for. Why are you worried? The king's in control. He'll feed you. Forgive us our debts. Well, that's interesting. Forgive us our debts. What's our debt? We have sinned. We have turned our back against God. We have so much debt hanging over us. And what is the cry? It's that you might forgive that debt. Does he have the power to forgive that debt? He showed it right before he raised up a paralytic man. And here he is, and he's showing the world, I'm the king. I'm capable of doing that. And that's our prayer. Forgive us of our debts. But then what's great is, as we then what? Forgive our debtors. So in the same way that we're receiving that grace and that love, may we then share that with the people around us. Because if we're in the kingdom, and he's the king, and we're praying that the king would give us this, what do you think that's going to do in the kingdom? It's going to spread that grace, that love, that forgiveness. And then lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He was tempted just like we were, and he overcame. That's the kind of king that we have. That prayer that you pray is a significant prayer. That prayer that we pray that he told us to pray, that is an ongoing prayer that reminds you, reminds me, that we are all part of the kingdom. And now listen, we don't just sit in the kingdom. We're not just the recipients of the kingdom. And I think that's the problem with today's religion. I think so often what we want to do is say, oh, it's so wonderful that we receive this grace. It's so wonderful that we get to receive this love, that we get to enjoy the benefits of what it means to have heaven right here on earth. But guess what? You partake, <laughs> partake of the kingdom, but you're also those that are now the vessel, the conduit of those blessings. Others will enjoy and receive the answers to this prayer through you. You're not just the recipient. And his miracles demonstrate this over and over and over. 
There's a quote that I love by Tim Keller. It says these words. It says, we modern people think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order, but Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease and hunger and death. Jesus has come to redeem where it is wrong and heal the world where it is broken. His miracles are not just proofs that He has power, but also wonderful foretastes of what He is going to do with that power. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds. They are a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is, in fact, coming. Life is tough. We live on a cursed earth. And what Jesus does through his miracles is to demonstrate to us, listen, even though it's as difficult as it is, there is a power that transcends it. There's a power that we, if we believe in it, gets to rest not only on our hearts, but in tangible ways around us. I need you to believe this. Listen, church, we have to live this out. Recently, Joe and I... Um, we met with a, with a young couple, and uh, I guess this is a good time, Dad. We've got to get a better cue. It's, it's good. I try to tell you with my mind, but you're not picking up on this. <laughs> Joe and I recently uh, met with a young couple. We were just going out, and, uh, and we were sitting there and whatnot, and um, <laughs> the wife began to just ask us different questions. And she's really sweet anyway. She's very kind of tenderhearted. But neither of them are Christians. Neither of them are, are believers. And, you know, we love them, and uh, we, we hold no judgment at all. Um, in fact, one of the things that I love about meeting with them is the questions that they ask. But she began to ask questions to us. And the questions that she began to ask had to do with the type of people that we found ourselves connecting with. Because as we were talking about, whether it was the, the people in his youth ministry or the people that I've worked with through CASA or, or the people that I've, I've known throughout the years in our church and even myself and my, and my own story, she began to realize we're messed up. Like all, all of us are messed up. But the fact that we, not just the two of us, but that our church, because I kept, I kept reminding her, this is what our church does, that our church would go out and connect with people who are miserable, who have had trauma in their life, who maybe don't have parents, who are probably held captive by all sorts of different addiction, who probably have been abused in some way, who might even be the abuser in another way. That we, this group right here, would be willing to connect with people who are dangerous, people who might harm us. She started to cry in the middle of it, and it really caught me off guard because I wasn't sure what to say. You know, we were, we, were just, we were just chatting at the time. But it's interesting to me because what is she feeling inside? What's the emotion that is, that's, that's being processed? I believe that the emotion is this, that she knows deep down inside the world actually isn't really meant to be this way. And whether we're trying to embrace political action or whether we're trying to uh, embrace this idea that if we could 
have closer relationships or maybe social media will help us or whatever it might be that's going to bring the cure for this society, it continually falls short outside of the love of Jesus Christ. Now, she didn't say it that way, right? I think she's feeling that. I think we all feel that. I think we feel attention. This world right now, this is not the way it was meant to be. We had a Savior come, and he gave us a brief glimpse of the way it is supposed to be, the way one day it will be, that all of us will have all the things that we hate in our life pushed to the side. All of the sin, the debt that we have will be forgiven, and we will be reunited with our Savior. As we draw closer to Easter, I want you to do your homework. I want you to dive into the Gospels. I want you to read in such a way that when you read about the parables and when you read about the temptations and the miracles, you're starting to process what was going on, but then you're also starting to process what's going on inside of here, inside of your own hearts. Please pray with me. Great God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the fact that you sent your son, that you sent yourself to walk on this earth, to live with us. God, you have tremendous power. So many times you could have used it to perhaps avoid a temptation. You could have used it for some self-interest, for some difficulty. Jesus, we thank you for what you have done. We thank you for the character that you have, the mercy that you have shown. We thank you for the emotions that you have had, the fact that you would weep for us. We thank you for the fact that through all of the difficulties, the ways in which you were taunted, the ways in which people made fun of you, the ways in which they tried to hurt you and kill you, that you still found some sense of love to heal people, to demonstrate compassion, to demonstrate the power of God, to ultimately demonstrate that you were capable of defeating death. I thank you for the fact that all of the garbage in my life, the things that I have done to reject you, that you have taken them and you've placed them upon yourself, that you have become that offering for me and for each of us here. Lord, allow us to let that truth penetrate our hearts. Help us to understand that your power has been manifested in a way that just results in love. And the love that we then experience is only a glimpse of what it will be like in the end. But for now, your kingdom is here and we are in it. And so allow us to spread that love and let us do it in extraordinary ways. I thank you so much for Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.